A good Tuesday morning to you at 8.30 Mountain Time, live on YouTube, on the Mixler audio app, via RyanJesperson.com. It's Ryan Jesperson with you. Real Talk, the show technically produced by Samuel G. Brooks. A good morning to you, my man. Good morning. How you doing? Busy morning for you. Busy morning. I've been asking you. I've been saying, can you screen grab this, Sam? Can you screen grab that? Oh, yes. We're getting a lot of our, our inbox right now is just like, you know, if, if there was a it's too bad. We don't have like one of those little bells that it would be like ding, 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 ding. I mean, that would get annoying. After it would sound like a it would sound like a Vegas casino. I can bring one up if you really want. It's all right. Talk at Ryan is where you can get in touch with us. Of course, you can use the hashtag real talk RJ, which I suspect will be trending. Over the next couple of hours as we get to more and more of your feedback, uh, if you're wondering, you're you're tuning in this morning from B.C. or Ontario or Utah or New Zealand and you're going, what are they getting at? Why is this such a busy morning? Why? Why are real talkers so perturbed this morning? The government of Alberta releasing yesterday its draft K to six curriculum, its draft curriculum for kindergarten through grade, grade six students and people are losing their damn minds. Uh, we're going to get to this with a couple of expert voices in a moment. We want to know what you have to say about this. I'll be keeping a keen eye on our live chat this morning. I've not yet dropped into it to see how everybody's doing, but but I suspect that people are all kinds of riled up as well. If, if Twitter and our email inbox is any indication, I suspect that that many of you are going to have a lot to say. Debbie says no shortage of news these days. Yeah, Debbie, we're we're just can you imagine we're sitting here going like what major story should we touch on first? Although sometimes a story will just force its way to the front of a lineup. And that's exactly what's happened here. So so we have an anti-racism roundtable coming up today. And I've I've literally 10 minutes ago sent them an email and said, hey, we're going to start it. We're going to start that conversation a little bit later than than planned, because because we got a lot of ground to cover. Should we just before we even officially kick off the show, should we take a look at, at what Twitter look Twitter looks like right now? Oh, we probably Okay. So should. here is uh this is probably my favorite tweet Mine of the morning too. and I'm sure that he's going to be excited to be awarded that honor, uh former National Hockey League captain, a Stanley Cup champion, Andrew Ference, uh commenting on CTV Edmonton's report that in Alberta's capital city today in Edmonton firefighters were called to put out a massive flaming pile of garbage. Andrew wonders, was it the new curriculum? I thought that was pretty good for him. Two points for the defenseman. Leah says, this is embarrassing. I'm a veteran educator and I will not teach this curriculum. I'll quit or move. I'm thankful my kids are out of the education system. If they had been subjected to this nonsense, I would be furious. Alyssa says, we're talking about, and we're going to get into to jazz uh, because of the jazz musicians whose, whose careers and legacies are being taught and celebrated um, this is not even a, I had to check to see, is this actually a joke? I thought, is the Beaverton writing this or is is the onion in on the gig? I honestly think in Alberta, sometimes we could do a recurring segment called, is this a Beaverton headline so, or a real headline? It is a real headline that the Alberta curriculum will include a lesson on literally Premier Jason Kenney's grandpa, a big band leader, Mark Kenny, who's literally like. We're not teaching them about Tommy Banks, greatest jazz musician, probably that. Well, maybe I should be careful. I'm not an expert in the history of jazz, but I know that Tommy Banks, former Senator Tommy Banks is a legend. Serious. We're not, we're not learning about we're community. not learning about Tommy Banks. But we're learning about literally Jason Kenny's grandpa. And I've got a couple of notes from people that are like, no, nah, I mean, he was he did like kind of have a decent career. Honestly, 
Let's get to the tweet, Sam. Here it is. Uh, listener says, uh, this is Alyssa, says both those suggestions for jazz musicians, we'll get into it in a bit, including Mark Kenny, are disgustingly whitewashing the ethnocultural origins of this genre. Brad follows up and says, that got lost in the ridiculousness of the curriculum. He says, featuring some unknown white guy was an example of jazz. He says, you're trying hard to remove black people at that point. <laughs> DJ Chocolate Milk says, Alberta's having a, a very North Korean vibe going on right now. Todd says you almost have to admire how committed to the role of hapless villain Kenny is. He says this is some Daniel Day Lewis level dedication we're witnessing. I mean, this is what you're saying to us on Twitter. These are the these and I'm not reading all of them. We're just picking a few because we actually have guests we're going to talk to. We actually have interviews to do today, Sam. And I haven't even got to the emails yet. Like, what about this from Kendall, who says, I I am particularly excited, Ryan, for this morning's real talk after the absolute bomb that Alberta education dropped yesterday. As an educator, I am livid, says Kendall. I'm thoroughly appalled by this curriculum. The proposed curriculum takes Alberta's education system from fairly sophisticated and advanced, even on the world scene, to downright laughable. And not like, ha-ha laughable. Like, I can't believe they're actually doing it laughable, says Kendall. The, are we back in the 1960s laughable? Says this teacher, I simply cannot comprehend how misguided and inappropriate and whitewashed and outdated and frankly shameful the ideas present in this new curriculum are. Teaching about the Mongol Empire in grade two, promoting Christianity in grade six, presenting all the other religions as others, failing outright the truth and reconciliation calls to action up until fourth grade, saying that Quebec was turned British after the conquest of 1760, glorifying colonialism, calling what was done to our indigenous peoples a sacrifice. Let's not get into the fact that the obviously infamous insert sarcasm here says kendall kenny's jazz musician grandfather somehow got snuck in kendall says i could go on about this forever i cannot believe the incredible step backward this new curriculum threatens to take i will not teach this this is not my curriculum signed a pissed off teacher that from kendall Today's conversation is brought to you by our title sponsor, who sometimes find themselves in the in the eye of a storm, Sam. Bitcoin Well. They love that we have these conversations, so much so that each and every morning they lead the charge with us. And of course, they're doing the exact same thing in their industry, in their line of work. If you're trying to figure out crypto, whether you're an individual or a business owner, small business, big business, if ultimately financial sovereignty is your game, the team at Bitcoin Well would love to talk to you about how they can help you make that happen. Starting with wherever you're at, with your understanding of crypto, blockchain, and the like. They're moving to new digs in downtown Edmonton. They're on a hiring blitz through this year, and they're about to go public. Things are booming for Bitcoin Well. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. To talk at RyanJesperson.com. Ryan, my name is Hannah, and I'm a grade 11 student in Calgary. Both my mom and I love your podcast. Hannah, you just made my day. Engaged grade 11 students tuning in. She says, all my living relatives born and raised right here in Alberta, words can't describe how ticked off I am over this new proposed curriculum. 
The K to six curriculum does not directly impact me, but I can't believe that the government thinks it's okay to teach little kids deep European history and the impact of religion on the modern world before they know basic multiplication. Hannah says, I can't wait to hear your take on this. That from Hannah. This from Jocelyn, who says all the decisions made by our provincial government have been frustrating. Yesterday was the last straw for my husband and I. We're both teachers in Alberta, have been for many years, and we're very frustrated with the draft K-6 curriculum. This new curriculum is supposed to be teaching future adults who will be working and, and helping to make Alberta prosperous in the 21st century. There are too many connections to American history. I mean, I'm a grade six teacher, says Jocelyn. And after looking at the social studies curriculum, my jaw dropped. The current curriculum is all about democracy, past and present, our charter of rights and freedoms, how to participate in our democracy. With this new curriculum under the UCP, students will be learning about American history, American wars, American identity. Jocelyn picks one example. She says, explore the origins of American national character. How much did Governor John Winthrop and the Puritans from the Massachusetts Bay Colony contribute to the shaping of the idea of American identity in early colonial America? She says, I'm reading the word United States more than the country we live in. I mean, are we teaching our students how to be American or Albertan? I'm a frustrated and disappointed Alberta teacher. That from Jocelyn. Donna, Real Talkers, you're leading the show today. These are your words. Donna says, I heard that the new Alberta curriculum draft for grades K to 6 was up, and it is right now. You can check it out at alberta.ca slash curriculum. Donna says, so I started browsing. I started looking through the grade 6 curriculum for music composers, big band music, and two names were listed. Glenn Miller and Mark Kenny. She says, I've never heard of this guy. So I Googled him. It's Jason Kenny's grandfather. Why would they not list Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington? Says Donna, perhaps somebody on the curriculum committee is sucking up to our premier. Lisa says, you know, I had a feeling that the music curriculum would be an old dead white guy gong show with like a tribe called Red thrown in for a token nod to indigenous musicians. It seems very much to be a music appreciation and theory course. Very little actual music making. It's 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 unusual for the music curriculum to have prescribed song examples. So our community, says Lisa, has been dissecting these choices and something in the grade six curriculum caught our eye. No Duke Ellington in examples of big band music, but Mart Kenny, the premier's grandfather, says Lisa. Have fun with that and happy spring break. A lot of teachers writing in to remind us that this is all being released as teachers are off on spring break and right before April Fool's Day, for that matter. Dr. Carla Peck is a professor of social studies education in the Department of Elementary Education at the University of Alberta. She teaches and researches in the areas of citizenship and history education. She's currently the director of a pan-Canadian research partnership thinking historically for Canada's future and she's done amazing work early in the process i know that she was up burning the candle at both ends because she was emailing me at two in the morning letting me know that at carlapeck.wordpress.com she's got her next dissection up there for your digestion dr Dwayne donald is a descendant of the beaver hills people and the papas chase cree and is an associate professor in the faculty of education at the university of alberta his work focuses on ways in which indigenous wisdom traditions can expand and enhance our understandings of curriculum. Uh, doctors Donald and Peck, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us. 
Thanks. Hi, Ryan. Hi. Hi, Dwayne. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to. I want to. I sort of essentially want to get out of the uh, get out of the way here and let the two of you kick the soccer ball around it and help us understand. Doctor Peck, people can can read your work here. Uh, again, CarlaPeck.wordpress.com. Analysis of the draft, Alberta K to six social studies curriculum. I mean, you sort of essentially you have no time for it. You you say it sets Alberta social studies back decades in terms of quality and achievement in curriculum design. Take us into this. So, yeah, I mean, that analysis is a, focused on the K-2 to curriculum, and I'll be writing up my analysis of the 3-6 the to six later on today. But basically, this curriculum um, does not reflect any uh, current or long-standing, highly regarded research in social studies education about how best to teach children. Um, you know, foundational social studies concepts. It uh, basically ignores the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You start to see a little bit of mention starting in grade four about treaties, um, but, you know, the, the inclusion is, um, it's just sort of feels like passing reference as opposed to anything really meaningful. Um, the there are there's the stuff that's listed in the skills and processes or procedures columns of the curriculum document these are not uh, recognized skills processes or procedures in uh, social studies parlance and in research and in what's recognized as good practice i mean just everything uh is is absolutely faulty and you know, even before all that, even before we consider the overall design of the curriculum, it is so developmentally inappropriate, it is almost beyond belief that, you know, wanting children in grade two to learn about Athenian democracy, when that's what they're learning about in grade six. And I think one of the people who wrote to you, one of the emails you were reading was commenting on that. I mean, it, and it, I mean, that's just one example among like 52 pages of examples that I could offer. Dr. Donald, your, your initial assessment of what you saw? Well, first, I want to just say how thankful I am for the, the work of my friend and colleague, Dr. Peck, and, and just really doing the work and supporting everyone and trying to understand the implications of this. And I guess for me, Ryan, the way I understand curriculum is in terms of story. So what's the story that's being told? And the social studies is the document that I had a chance to speed read last night. And I think it's very clear that this curriculum is an expression of the ideology of this government, which is basically a moral success story of, of liberal worldview and how it arose. You know, there's detours through Greece, Rome, Christian Europe, on into the enlightenment. And, and so what it results in from their point of view is this society that we live in now, and this is the, the inheritance or the legacy that they want Alberta students to um, know in much detail. So it's like this love for this story that this, the curriculum developers have is laid out in a very timeline fashion. And they plug in every event that they think is, is so important and it's it's ridiculous actually and uh you know i think i think parents and grandparents in alberta should be really worried about this story being imposed on their children there's a there's a lot of talk about 
uh, and, and I'm saying this is this is anecdotally, which is why I'm, I'm so grateful that the two of you are here, because I only know what I'm seeing from people. I'm reading people's first impressions, oftentimes encapsulated. Um, by the way, Dr. Donald, I love your email to me. You're like, I don't have any social media accounts. You can't tag me on anything. And I was like, <laughs> how freeing that must be, by the way. You must have you must have such a copacetic reality at times not being on social media because I'm on there. And like o- former Oilers Captain Andrew Ference joked this morning. I mean, Carla looks to me like a dumpster fire. People are people are enraged um, and for many different reasons. But but a lot of it seems to be like just memorizing lists like long uh, sort of long. You, you joked in your uh, blog post, you, you said you get tired even typing the stuff out and maybe not as much focus as educators would like to see on helping children understand what everything means. Right. I mean, this is in in essence exactly what uh, what Dwayne has said. This is like a drive by curriculum, right? Let's see how much we can sort of march through or parade through or drive through uh, content. And there's no opportunity and no um, even inclination in this document that there would be a desire for deep understanding. The most that students are going to get is is a passing reference to these long lists of places and dates and names and, you know, the pyramids and the Magna Carta and whatever. These are important things. I would love for students to know these uh, deeply, but when you have 52 pages, that is essentially just a list of things for students to learn. Um, And let's remember in elementary school, students have about 30 minutes a day for social studies. So, you know, how on earth is that going to be done in any kind of meaningful way? It's just unfathomable that it's like it's like the people who wrote this have never met a child. Um, I'm trying to decide if I should. Yeah, I mean, like I just to be honest, I'm not even trying to be mean. I actually mean this seriously. Like I can imagine a grade two Jason Kenny like studying the Magna Carta and memorizing things about Greek democracy and be, like I that doesn't surprise. It, it, it feels like just as a civilian, it feels like Jason Kenny wrote this whole thing. And I know that that's not the case, but I mean, the whole Mart Kenny thing, I mean, it's just it's such a tiny little element of it. But but to me, it's so telling. Now, let's be honest. I know what his issues managers are going to say today. I know what they're going to say about the two of you. And I know what they're going to say about me. And I know what they're going to say about the interview. And they're going to say that this is this is not an objective lens and these are people that have had a problem with this government from the beginning, and they're biased. And I even saw Dr. Peck. I mean, the chief attack dog for the premier is already calling you an NDP fundraiser. I saw that. Yep. So uh, let me read this from Jarrett. Who's, Jarrett says, I, I find it really hard, to be honest, to assess the curriculum. It feels like there's a bunch of good things, like learning about Sikhs, for example, and there's much more of a focus on indigenous history and culture. Dr. Donald, I'll ask you about that in a minute. He says teaching consent, teaching computer science, although I see that the education minister thinks that they can teach coding with paper and pen. Jarrett says, but the temperatures turned up and it's hard to tell who to trust on other issues like what is deemed too hard to learn at a certain age or what's too biased toward Jason Kenney's right wing Christian worldview or what's missing or what should be there, etc. Dr. Donald, what would you say to Jarrett and other people that feel that way? Yeah, I guess what I would draw attention to is, uh, you know, when I think about curriculum, I think about 
the, what's the theory of the child that's contained in this in the curriculum document and how it's structured and and also how does it position teachers and I think is really obvious um, trying to be as neutral as I can here Ryan if that's even possible but I think it's really obvious that um, you know this government considers the Alberta Teachers Association a problem and so when when you have that position as a government and you're developing curriculum, one of the ways to control the ability of teachers to provide, you know, pedagogical expertise and, and professionalism is to load the curriculum with so much information that all they're doing is just delivering on it. They don't actually have an opportunity to teach in a meaningful way. And so this is what I see as, as part of this is there's a theory of the teacher that's embedded in, you know, this curriculum draft and it's basically that they want teachers to only just be dispensing information and, and not actually engaging with more complex understandings of curriculum and, and how we learn, how we perceive the world and how we find meaning. Dwayne, how do you uh, Jared's comment about is uh, let me read it word for word. He says there's much more of a focus on indigenous history and culture. Uh, I've heard some people suggest that that residential schools are not discussed early enough. People are describing it. As a matter of fact, I think, Dr. Peck, you described it as a token effort uh, to infuse some indigenous learning into the curriculum. I want to ask you both about this. But, Dwayne, you first. Well, I think it's important for people to realize that the current social studies curriculum actually engages with indigenous issues fairly extensively, or at least there's opportunity to do that. And I think teachers in general based on PDE and our own efforts in faculties of education, you know, we're, we're trying to encourage that more and more. The way I see what's included in, uh, you know, this current draft is that it's again, this timeline approach. And what they've done is they've taken indigenous themes and issues, experiences, whatever you want to call them, and they've plugged them into the timeline. So it's like incorporating indigenous experience into this you know, bigger, better, stronger, faster, smarter story that they want to tell. And so the best thing for Indigenous people to do is to, you know, uh, come to terms with this story and join this moral success. You know, that's the message that I get from that. And there's no, for example, I would say, you know, in my own teaching that rather than treaties or truth and reconciliation being a single theme, a topic that you take up at a grade level, it should be infused throughout the document as a guiding ethic and help us generate a new story about what it means to live here that is clearly being avoided by you know, this draft. Carla, what would you say to that? I can't add much more to what Dwayne has said. I mean, he's just captured it perfectly. Uh, and I, ju I just endorse what he said. I mean, this everywhere through the curriculum, you see the word timeline, 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 as if the only thing to think about is chronology and again this sort of march through all these different events that are predominantly western christian and uh, as Dwayne has said you know uh, a story of progress that um you know to hell with talking about any of the sort of bleak aspects or frankly racist uh colonial oppressive aspects of Canadian history that are still affecting us today. These are not things that are in the past and that we no longer have to talk about, but, uh, but they still affect us today. And the kind of information, and that's really what it is, in my mind, it doesn't reflect uh, Indigenous knowledges, 
um, it's, it's simply information, as Duane said, sort of parked alongside other information. Um, and is for me, it does reflect a token approach. Let me read what some of the live uh, viewing audience members are saying this morning. This is in our live chat on our YouTube channel. Crazy Fast Eddie says, after a week of Asian hate crimes um, and people talking about racism and reverse racism, I'm surprised that Albertans, this is a bit of a dig, Crazy Fast Eddie says, I'm surprised they're not happy with the new curriculum. It's the whitest one ever. Ken says, well, maybe, just maybe, they want teachers to strike. Maybe they want public education to fail. You know, turn the public off of public education. This might be a long game. That from Ken. Now, you know, if you're a politician, you know how you're going to respond to that. You're, you're, you're going to gaslight Ken and everybody else, and you're going to go, you're not serious. You don't seriously think that. But, Dwayne, what do you think? Well, you know, I, I think it's clear that, uh, you know, Jason Kenney has, has articulated fairly often that uh, he still carries this Cold War paranoia about radical socialists that are seeking to undermine his, his vision for this province. And, uh, you know, I don't think it should be interpreted as uh, just a, um, an interesting side note that we have a, de- a very significant detour into deep colonial American history and his desire to align, you know, the way we think about ourselves with that. And uh, I, I just, uh, I guess what I, I get fired up about, Ryan, is is this refusal to accept that we need a new story to live by. I mean, there's all kinds of different things I could talk about, but this constant uh, looking elsewhere for solutions to, you know, the, the pressing issues we have here and the, and the refusal to rely on, you know, the people, the wisdom, the understandings, the relationships that exist right here in this province is, is really embarrassing for me. And uh, uh, I'll continue to, to try to send a very dis- different message in the courses that I teach. Dr. Peck, I, I, I suspect, I mean, I, I feel like I'm about to throw a hand grenade here or I, I feel like I'm about to step into something like talking about fluoride or, or something like that. Uh, but a few of our audience members want me to ask you about discovery math. I know that when you start talking about discovery math, people can get really, really, uh, whether it's teachers or parents. I mean, this can be a really contentious issue. Is there an app? A number of people are asking me to ask you about it. Uh, is there an application here? Um, well, I am not a math curriculum expert, so that is not something I can really speak to. Uh, here's the connection I would make to social studies, though. So I'm sorry to the viewers that I can't give an opinion on that, but it's, it's out of my field of expertise. But the connection to social studies is this. Um, from uh, the moment of the election campaign, what, a couple of years ago, uh, Premier Kenny and then candidate Kenny and Minister Lagrange um, talked again and again and again about removing um, uh, constructivism from the curriculum, removing inquiry from the curriculum and created this straw person argument, you know, that these were sort of the devils that were hiding in curriculum document. They were the, the, pro- the source of all the problems uh, in Alberta education. I mean, it just reflects, com- you know, com- a complete misunderstanding of 
of theories of learning, of pedagogy, uh, and the complete conflation, frankly, of curriculum and pedagogy. So I can't talk about discovery math, but I, that's the connection I would make to social studies. So what would the two of you, I mean, you know, you're going to have, obviously there's a lot of educators watching right now. I can see the chatter on social media. I really appreciate it. I suspect that this will be a, 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 a much downloaded podcast and it'll make its way around. And a lot of these people that are going to be listening are going to be parents or concerned citizens that want to know, okay, what does this mean? What can we do at this point? What should we do at this point? And they're going to, they're going to want the expert opinions. Uh, so, Dr. Donald, maybe you first. Well, you won't be surprised, Ryan, to hear me say that I consider, you know, curriculum to be a very sacred kind of work because it has to do with stories we want to tell our children about the world and their place in it. And I just think that uh, it's time for us as citizens to insist that, uh, as my colleague at the U of A, Kent Den Heyer, has recently written, that it be taken out of party pol politics and it it become much more curriculum development is much more taken up by people with expertise, people with experience, people who understand curriculum models and how they work. And, you know, for the last decade, we've been subjected to this political footballing of curriculum based on which parties in power. And we need a, need a model of collaboration and a model of innovation. And we're not getting that right now. Carla, what would you say? You know, I mean, people are going to say, here's what Dr. Peck told us. I mean, this is this is what we're going to walk with. This is what we're going to focus on. What would it be? Well, my advice is this. As you read through the curriculum, and for me, especially the social studies curriculum, ask yourself a few questions. Uh, what and whose knowledge is promoted or elevated as being most worthwhile? And whose knowledge and what knowledge is omitted or presented as less than compared to the one that's elevated. What kind of person is going to emerge at the end of grade six? And eventually when we see the high school curriculum, middle and high school, you know, what kind of person is going to emerge at the end of grade 12? And is that what we want for our children? And what kind of society is this curriculum ultimately going to produce? And I think it's really important to remember that curricula do not change quickly. Hmm. Some of the curricula that are being revised are over 30 or 40 years old. The social studies is among the newest of the ones that are being revised. And so the decisions that we make now about curricula are going to impact a whole generation of kids. And that is what is at stake here in my mind and the kind of society that we're gonna have once these kids leave the school system. So much to think about. Uh, I know that this is this is just the beginning, but this is the kind of thing where you, you heard this was going to drop yesterday and you just sort of felt like you fastened a five-point seatbelt because I know that a lot of people have been waiting for an opportunity to dig in and get a sense. It's like a harbinger, you know what I mean, of, of what may be to come. Sure appreciate the, the two of you, Dr. Carla Peck, Dr. Dwayne Donald, making time for us this morning, uh, and we'll look forward to future conversations. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Um, 
as mentioned, uh, you can read Dr. Peck's uh, work into this. She really dove into it. I mean, she, she literally spent a lot of time on it. And uh, her website, carlapeck.wordpress.com, uh, she gets into the draft social studies curriculum. So she takes a specific look at that. Received an email here from Marie, uh, who, who, as a matter of fact, wrote the email to the education minister, and she CC'd us, uh, which we love. Can I tell you, real talkers, something that you did? Something that you, you you sit there and you might go, you go. Well, we gather here in community every day. We have these conversations. We listen to these interviews. We participate on Twitter, or we 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 write in emails or whatever. You know, what can we actually do if we want to be agents of change or we want to be movers and shakers? What can we actually do? Let me tell you something you did, something you have accomplished already, maybe without even knowing it. Back in early January, Sam and I invited you to CC us on your emails to the premier's office and to the cabinet minister's offices, to the offices of your MLAs. And you did. As a matter of fact, it was a little much, right? I mean, my email, we were new at that time. Our show was like our show was like six weeks old at the time. And my email inbox went from like 300 to about 2000. Sam knows because I was telling I was, I was drinking from a fire hose every single day. <laughs> and, you, and you're CC'd on all of them. So, you know, I, well, I mean, the funny thing is, is that like <clears throat> I'm I'm CC'd on talk at Ryan But you also get yeah. the media requests and the guest bookings and the like all the stuff, all for the, the other business stuff. for it. So it's like I get. I, like I get a little branch of that fire hose, but you get like the full hydrant. So we get so we get all these emails. We're CC'd on all of them. You know, Premier Kenny this, Premier Kenny that, you know, Minister Allard. This was Aloha Gate. This was when Alberta was losing its collective mind. Or I don't have to get into it. All the traveling over the break when you weren't supposed to travel. You were being encouraged not to travel. And all the lawmakers and all the elected officials and all the chiefs of staff and press secretaries, they were traveling. And so... You go, well, what did we do? What did we accomplish? You CC'd us on so many emails to the premier, which we have, obviously, that when Jason Kenny stepped up the other day and looked you in the eye through a television camera and said, we only received seven emails of complaint, I was immediately able to say, horseshit, because we have hundreds of them to you, and we're CC'd on them. Now, we're just the little independent show, right? We're just the digital media startup. But Charles Fresnel over at the CBC was a hell of an investigative reporter who's experiencing hurdles and curtains and smoke screens in front of his freedom of information requests. I was wondering when you get to him. Yeah, he's been in People touch with us. We've been in touch open. with him. And yeah. I said to Charles, I will literally give you the keys to my inbox. I trust him. I said, I'll give you my password. You can just go in there and read literally hundreds of emails. So keep CCing us on these emails to your government because you know that they are lying. Oh, Ryan, that's unparliamentary language. Hey, the way I was raised, when you look people in the eyes and tell them things that aren't true, that's called lying. And you, real talkers, can hold this government to account with the rest of us because they've got no problem lying to your face. Marie wrote this to the education minister yesterday and CC'd us. Dear Minister LaGrange, where to begin? I don't know whether to applaud the sheer chutzpah or bemoan the stunning lack of awareness at what a curriculum actually is that you saw fit to release this travesty, even as a draft, and believe that you did anything remotely resembling any definition of good shows either an appalling lack of judgment or 
you have truck nuts the size of basketballs hanging off your F-350. That's what got the email read. Operating on the assumption that this is not some sort of early April Fool's joke, let's highlight a few of the more glaring issues here. I find it questionable whether any of the writers have ever met a child, let alone taught one. In grade two, for example, we are to believe that seven-year-olds have the ability to understand how feudalism works. This is not to say it's impossible to make a seven-year-old understand the core features of such a system of governance, but one would assume that they had previously learned things like indentured servitude and the divine right of kings in grade one, which is equally absurd. And let's pretend they had the fundamentals to understand such a concept. The question begs itself to what end? Why? The guiding question informs me that these medieval systems have value, but that's a tautology. I can only conclude that your ultimate aim is to reintroduce feudalism at some point. Future generations will certainly know their place within it. Second, none of the concepts have any sort of sense of age progression. We swing wildly from learning about the medieval period's greatest hits to an inane jumble of random facts. You're telling me that grade twos should be able to understand the Holy Roman Empire? Most adults don't fully comprehend that. Yet they need to be told they can't see the sun at night in grade four. Is grade three the new dark ages? Or grade four the renaissance? Finally breaking free from stumbling blindly about wondering where the mystical sparkly orb goes and finally understanding why they can't see it? I wish I was making this up. And speaking of grade four, why is the metric system now science? Was it too complex for math? And why do we talk about the Spanish influence on cowboy culture? Are you even trying to hide that you copied this from Texas? Do children in Texas also wonder why they can't see the sun at night? Finally, and minister, you'll get additional points for the unbelievable pettiness of this one. Why are both mandated big band era musicians white? Are we to believe that white people invented big band jazz? And why is one of them the premier's grandpa? We're to believe that Mark Kenny had any sort of influence on the style. I have more views on my video of my cat playing with a roll of wrapping paper than every song on his entire album. Perhaps we could include my cat in your revised update. I could keep going, says Marie, listing baffling decision after baffling decision that has been made on this curriculum. But like a condemned building, this just isn't salvageable. There are no redeeming qualities on this piece of work. Sure, you might point to that one time that you mentioned indigenous people, but it's just like a sticker on an old computer that says Y2K compliant. It doesn't mean anything anymore, and it shows you just don't get it. You don't understand curriculum. You don't understand how the modern world works, and you don't understand inclusion. It's okay, says Marie. The world is a big, scary place. That's why we have teachers to help you understand it. Maybe let them write the curriculum next time. That's from Marie to Alberta's education minister, CCing Real Talk, which we appreciate. We're going to move on our conversation in just a moment. We'll get to more of your takes on the Real Talk RJ hashtag. Let me remind you that we're so proud to partner with the team at Eden Landscaping. The team at Eden Landscaping is ready to go. They build, they design and build Ways that you can completely transform your outdoor space. You're looking at that front yard. You're going, everybody's talking about curb appeal. What could I do? Maybe you're working within a certain budget. What could I do to really ramp up my curb appeal? Or what could we roll out in our backyard to really change the way that we recreate this summer? 
They've been doing it for 20 years, and they've got great ideas on outdoor cook centers and gazebos and patios with those fitted stones. You can find them at landscapeedmonton.ca or under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find the team at Grand Dog Essentials. We believe in that product so much that we feed our dogs, Moses and Monroe, quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials. They've got great nutrition tips like Monroe, our black lab, is eating blueberries with her food now. And there's a reason for it. The team at Grand Dog can bring you up to speed. You can learn more about their essential supplements. And if you use the promo code REALTALK at granddog.ca, they'll give you 10% off your first time order. And they deliver to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. Also, a big shout out to the team at Alberta Blue Cross. You know, running a small business is not a nine to five job. Neither is taking care of your employees. That's where a group benefit plan from Alberta Blue Cross can help with digital tools that do the heavy lifting for you from start to finish. Your employees can enroll and manage their benefits digitally anywhere on any device. And as a plan administrator, you can oversee your entire account all in real time, all within your budget. You know how important that is. Learn how Alberta Blue Cross makes managing your health and dental life and disability coverage simple and affordable at abbluecross.ca. I'm excited. We'll go from one conversation uh, of great meaning. Are we ready to rock with our panel, Sam? Good to go here. We got two out of three ready. Two out of three. No problem. I'll tell you what I'll do. You let me know when the third is ready to rock and roll. And in the meantime, we'll get to some comments of of what real talkers have to say about this. (laughs) Tracy on the grand dog read says our dog is actually scared of blueberries and cherry tomatoes and anything else that's round or explodes when you bite it. My sister's dog will do like anything for one frozen blueberry you know you like, oh, you right? introduce dogs to like you know little treats early on and then they'll yes just, like they'll do anything for it so like she'll like if you go to the freezer and pull out a single frozen blueberry you can get her to do anything you want wow um that's good to know though it's good yeah. to know what your dogs like uh i don't want to say what their kryptonite is because that's going in the wrong direction but what, whatever <laughs> it is what's the dog equivalent of catnip and do cats actually care about catnip i don't actually know is it that i'm not a cat guy i don't know I, if, uh, having, I've got no problem with cats. Yeah, having had a couple of cats, it's not like they go like wandering the world seeking catnip, but like they definitely go a little nutty when it's around. So it's yeah. like it's, it's all right. Yeah, it's, it's like one of it's like whoever owned the genetic rights to that plant or that product. It's a plant, right? It is a plant. Yeah, uh, you can grow. catnip. They, they named it catnip probably to boost their sales. Right. It's like Premier, including his grandpa in in the big band curriculum, right? Like who owns the royalties to Mark Kenny's music? Everybody wants to know that. Erica is watching in. Erica, appreciate it. She says there's so much hyperbole today. It's totally disappointing. Um, I don't have Erica's previous comment in front of me, but I did see earlier in the chat. She said what most people are upset about is that there's not enough white guilt in the curriculum. Um, I'm paraphrasing what Erica said because I don't have it in front of me, but she basically said if there was more about how bad white people should feel about everything they've done, then people would be more heavy or more happy, I should say. Maria says the curriculum is so content heavy, not to mention developmentally inappropriate. We can have multiple conversations at the same time, right? So I can I can let you know that meantime, Colette's chickens loved blueberries. What? Chickens love blueberries? The watcher says catnip is cat pot. 
There I said Strayus says cats do care about catnip. It's a little buzz. All right. It sounds to me you can probably hear Sam in the background coordinating with our panelists. We got all three ready to go, Sam. Okay, we've been looking forward to this. I'm going to introduce them and, and we'll bring them in. You heard a while ago when Amarjeet Sohi was on the program uh, a while back, he was talking about this course that he was going to be spearheading it. Uh, essentially, I'm pretty sure instructing, and we're, we're going to make sure that that's accurate. But, but uh, a course at McEwen University out of Edmonton, can compassionate and collaborative leadership combat racism? And so he obviously got a whole bunch of interest there from people that were that were interested in in being leaders on anti-racism in their community. So we wanted to follow up with former minister Amarjeet Sohi, former city councilor here, as you know, and see how it all went. And he said, well, why don't we why don't we bring in some people that participated and why don't we have a conversation about anti-racism in our communities and what that means? I absolutely love Former Minister Sohi has agreed to join us alongside two others. Barry Morishita, for those of you that don't know, is the president of the AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. He is the mayor of the city of Brooks, which is, because I know my pal Stu is a proud Brooks resident. He lets me know every single time, Mayor, it's the city of 100 hellos and oftentimes described as the most diverse community in Canada. And we'll get into that. And it's a real pleasure as well to welcome to the show, making her debut on Real Talk. Janelle Saskia uh, has been involved in politics and, and government relations for more than 20 years, former mayor of Marwayne, of course. And, and she's worked on, on providing leadership and, and, and assisting leaders working with many different organizations uh, focused on learning with others and from others, building standards and working to remove barriers to the three of you thanks for making time for us this morning and welcome to the show thanks for having oh, us. good morning it's good to see you good morning uh yeah mayor first of all uh canada's or the most diverse community in canada brooks alberta i know a lot of communities are going to go oh we thought maybe we would have been in the running for that how, how how does brooks make such a bold claim well you know we're we're a small city of fifteen thousand. we have uh Probably about 35 to 45% of our population is visible, minorities. Um, recent immigrants, I, I count that like in the last 20 years. Uh, it's just an amazing place, uh, food and culture. And yeah, you wouldn't believe it. You got to come down and see it for yourself to believe it. Yeah, you bet. I've had so many amazing days fishing on Newell Lake. I'll tell you that much. Um, Amarjeet, I, I want to make sure that I'm 100% accurate. You were instructing this course at McEwen, correct? And, and did you help design it, put it together? Well, first of all, I want to second uh, uh, Barry on uh, uh, Brooks being the highly diverse community because uh, his community actually won a couple of awards from the FCM in, uh, in the work they're doing in inclusion and diversity uh, area. So uh, absolutely a very good story coming out of uh, Alberta on how we are tackling uh, these very difficult and uh, challenging issues. So as far as the course is concerned, uh, Ryan, I did put it together. Uh, I uh, compiled compiled a lot of ideas to uh, uh, so that, that uh, the participants could uh, uh, discuss, and I facilitated uh, very deep, thorough conversations that we had that Barry and Janelle will uh, attest to. I I think over the twelve weeks that we were together, we all grew together. We all really understood and went deep into what can we do to make sure that we have a compassionate approach, a collaborative approach in tackling racism 
and making sure our institutions are actually becoming anti-racist. So I uh, had a blast of a time and really enjoyed it and uh, looking forward to actually offering uh, a second class uh, in, starting in May. Janelle, when we talk about we want to talk about this through the specific lens of leadership, right? And, and how can leadership, effective or compassionate, empathetic leadership combat or, or, or lead to a spirit of or an endeavor of anti-racism? I guess it's probably worth pointing out that leadership is somewhat of a subjective phrase in a positive sense. I mean, you could be a leader in your community. You could be a leader in your parent group. You could be a leader in many different ways. What was it that drew you into this exercise? I think for me, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I feel somewhat blessed that I, I grew up in, in small communities. I've, I've always lived in communities of less than a thousand people. And um, in some ways, we have been sheltered from some of the anti-racism um, subjects that have been going on. But in other ways, um, it, it, it's never been more apparent and and um, it's hard to get away from it in smaller communities. As I started um, working with uh, groups and municipalities from all across Canada, um, you start to realize that, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I lived a very sheltered life and things have to change. And it doesn't matter if you come from a community of 500 people or if you're in a community of, of a million people, it's all up to us as leaders to um learn, listen, and then educate and change things for everybody around us. And um, I'll be honest, this course, you know, the first thing that caught my eye was the fact that Amarjeet was the instructor and uh, working with Amarjeet through the AUMA and then through the FCM when he was a minister and I chaired the transportation committee for FCM, you know, I've had years of of nothing but respect for Amarjeet. He's one of the brightest minds that you'll ever get to, uh, to meet. And uh, it was like, oh, okay, Amrishit's teaching a course and it's on compassionate leadership. You know, I, I think this is kind of neat. I wasn't expecting to, to get what I did out of the course. It was, um, it's changed me. Everything that I will do from this moment on, um, I will have the perspective of others, listening to others, um, reflecting on myself. I, I truly have walked away 12 weeks later as a much stronger leader, thanks to Amarjeet and the group that we were able to work with. That's pretty incredible. So, That's pretty incredible feedback for a core. Like, no, no disrespect, Amarjeet. You know, I'm saying this with respect, but like, it's just a course. Like, for for you to say it changed your life, that's huge. It did. It did. But it, it, but it is not a typical course, right, Ryan? It is really. It is not a curriculum based in a way that you follow instructions and you do assignments. It is about actually digging deeper into our feelings around uh, what biases influence our decision making. How do we question our own assumptions when we are developing policy, when we are developing programs? How do we question our own privileges when we are engaging with other people? Right. So it's all all about. Uh, you know, uh, reflection and and really going into those uh, difficult conversations, but doing them in a com- with compassion, with non-judgment, because racism, anti-racism work is a journey, you know, and it's not an event. Uh, there are four themes that developed out of this course that we can go into uh, uh, discussing a little bit later on. Uh, 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 
And, and uh, I think the, what differentiated this course was a deep commitment from all the participants to uh, put aside their shields, put aside their uh, the guarded thinking and really come into conversations with open mind and uh, and a willingness to be vulnerable and uh, and and questioning uh, our own judgments. So I think that was the main strength of this course. Mayor Morishita, you're a, a third generation Japanese Canadian. Um, you know, Janelle making the comment about racism, sometimes how it can in, in a community can kind of you know fly below the radar, so to speak, and then and then oftentimes rear its ugly head. Uh, you know, we did an entire panel a couple of weeks ago on anti-Asian racism, and we've seen some horrific examples uh, recently. Um, how have you been processing that as as a person and also as a community leader? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's like Amarjeet said. You know, we're we're all in charge of our response and reaction to things, and and how we process things. You know, one of the things that came away from the course that I think is really really moved the way I think about is that we are people first, all of us, and we're experiencing things. So whether I'm a person experiencing racism, whether I'm a person experiencing homelessness, people around us have to be considerate of that, that we are people first, and the conditions that are around us are things that we should be endeavoring to make better for each other. And, and when it comes to, you know, uh, my background, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, it's an interesting place for me because as you can see from looking at me I don't look a lot I don't look half Japanese typically and so I've got to hear it from both sides and some people don't realize my last name means that I'm Japanese and so I, I've heard the rhetoric and kind of the insensitive phrases and words a lot in my life sometimes from the side of being with people that I know and sometimes being the subject of it but in every case, I, I have not changed. I am a person. I'm a, a person born in Canada. I'm a person who lives in Alberta. And we just need to take a step and realize that everyone around us, no matter what they look like, no matter what their religious beliefs are, no whatever the preferences are, they are people first. And they deserve as much out of life as any of us. And, and uh, what Amarjeet's course uh, really made us look at is that by bringing compassion and empathy into every single consideration, every decision you make, not, not, just, not just the ones you think they belong to, but actually every single one, whether it's a hiring practice or a budget or anything, if we bring compassion and empathy to those considerations, we're going to build a better community. And that's, that's, that's what it's all about. So Amarji, where do we fall short typically? As, as leaders, I mean, not everyone's a CEO, but but to a certain degree, people can be even leaders in their own household or whatever the case. Um, where How do we fail to infuse or invoke that empathy, that compassion that Mayor Morshid is talking about? Yeah, I, I think a uh, lot of people don't understand the impact of racism on the racialized people. So one, there's a number of things that we discussed in this, in this course. First of all, for us to be anti-racist, there's few things we need to realize and acknowledge. One of them is that racism is systemic in our society. When you look at the history of Canada, uh, like I, I love our country. Canada is one of the best countries to uh, live in. I build my life here. I came with nothing and this country has given me so much. 
But that does not mean we cannot make it even a better place. In order for us to make a better place, we need to acknowledge where the flaws are. And one flaw is that racism has been part of our history. You look at the colonization of indigenous peoples, you look at the residential schools, you look at uh, the languages that have been taken away from indigenous uh, communities, you look at the exclusionary immigration policies, you look at the high concentration of uh, indigenous and black Canadians in the in the justice system, in the prison system. So all those things, I think acknowledging is, is, is a first step that racism is real and is systemic. And the second step is that if racism is real and systemic, our organizations are going to be influenced by it and racialized people who work in our organizations uh, are going to bring their pain and suffering with them to work. So if we don't create a space where compassion, with compassion and empathy for those people to actually talk about their experiences, then we will not be able to build inclusive uh, uh, communities. Another aspect that we uh, dug deeper into, and we I think we grew together learning about it, is that as leaders, if we don't make a commitment to be anti-racist in our own lives and in our own work, then we cannot build anti-racist organizations. And that is so, their personal sense of responsibility and leadership is so fundamental in my mind that if you're not leading by example, people will see through it if you're not genuine and sincere about it. And that personal responsibility to go on a journey to be anti-racist is so important. So Janelle, I mean, I uh, Amarjeet shared some information, some background information with me before, and I'm reading here in the course, uh, participants like yourself had deep conversations about their own biases, their own assumptions, their own privileges. I mean, these are these are difficult sort of look in the mirror exercises or at least they can be right what was your experience it was absolutely raw for me i have to admit that um you know and it it made me reflect even on the things that that my grandparents experienced coming to canada from the ukraine um my grandfather told us stories of of being strapped in school if they were caught speaking ukrainian my own parents changed their ukrainian names to more English conforming names um, so that they could fit into the into the community better. Um, years later, I, I think that it's so important for us to be sharing our stories. Um, I've actually given my youngest daughter my mother's Ukrainian name, and she carries that name very proudly. Mm. Um, that's very important to, to me. Um, again, you just leadership has to start from within us. And if, if we have to catapult the change, and whether it's being as simple as a leader in your own home or a leader of a major organization or government, it's all our responsibility to have these, these conversations. And, and like I said, the only way we're going to change is by listening, learning, and then educating. And that's the job that we have. Mayor, did you through the course of this identify anything, whether it was through, you know, I mean, you know, governance of the city of Brooks or the AUMA, or did you start taking a look at political structures or other structures and actually start seeing things that maybe you hadn't seen before? Did you have any of these sort of epiphanies? Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. And, you know, I think that, you know, you said look in the mirror kind of uh, uh, which which is a really good way to look at it. 
Um, and what what the cool thing about the course was, it allowed all of us, including myself, to look and say, okay, where are my biases and, and share those stories? And, you know, you would think, and this is the problem, I think we presume, you know, I'm half Japanese. I've been, uh, you know, ha have had felt that bias myself and some racism myself that I wouldn't have any. The fact is, is that I explored and I do have biases and being aware of those will make us go, will make me better. And so in my, in my communities, in my, in my work as a mayor and my work at AUMA, you know, um, one of the th tangible things was just speaking out about racist acts. Uh, we had a really good class about what's been going on in Alberta with some of the symbolism and some of the things that are kind of not really addressed by our leadership broadly. And, you know, we went to a board tape boardroom and board meeting of AUMA and said, you know what, we need to make a statement about this. And so uh, for the first time uh, uh, ever in our organization's history that I know of, and we're very much involved in welcoming inclusive, we actually came out with a statement on uh, the uh, Anti-Discrimination Day, March 21st, to say, hey, you know what, this is not acceptable in Alberta. The acts of people that uh, resort to discriminate, put down, marginalize, those are not acceptable things to do in this province. And when we get our organizations to do it, things they have not done to be examples for others, uh, we, we will make progress. We will, pre, pre, you know, we'll allow individuals in those organizations to have the safe space to be able to speak up and say what they need to say. Like Janelle said, we'll be able to feel comfortable telling those stories that maybe we weren't as comfortable telling before. And uh, everybody uh, will we'll move forward. Um, you know, Amarjeet is incredibly patient. And one of the problems that I have in, is not, I'm not quite as patient as Amarjeet. But the other thing I learned in that course is that, you know, if the four of us here today gain a little bit of confidence and a little bit of knowledge that allows us to speak a little bit more truthfully and forcefully about anti-racism, we'll have made some progress. And, and Amarjeet's uh, on course with that. He's, he's done a good job giving me that guidance. Well, I, I guess when you're when you sit in federal liberal cabinet in the province of Alberta, you learn to take deep breaths sometimes, Amarjeet, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back. We're going to be back with these three beauties in just a second. Um, you've obviously, if you're watching us on YouTube, you've obviously seen that Mayor Morishita has a, a historical sign uh, as part of his background, uh, noting the details of a Japanese internment camp. And I want to get to that in just a second. I mean, what a what a back to back uh, sort of uh, couple of conversations we've had this morning on the show, right? Curriculum, learning, educating our next generation, prioritizing facts and information and understanding. And now empathy and the application of leadership and understanding systems and systemic racism. And I mean, all of these conversations flow together, don't they? Back to our guests in just a moment. I wanted to take this second to remind you that the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, all six of those locations that Mark and Michael own want to remind you that seven nights a week, every night of the week after eight o'clock for five bucks, you can get their miracle treat combo. This is awesome. You can, for just five bucks, their treats, it's two for $5 treat night, medium dipped cones and sundays mix and match whatever flavors you like two of them for five dollars after 8 p.m at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park if you're in the business for a new truck to pull that trailer you're going to be getting away this summer you may not be with other people you may not be mixing and mingling like you want but heck you're going to get out there and breathe that mountain air 
pull your trailer with one of the multi-award winning Dodge Ram pickups that are earning rave reviews this year. They've got all kinds of financing options, including some 0% options. Go talk to the dealers in Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Big shout out to the team at Friesen Brothers as well. Their 15th Alberta location is wide open in Edmonton and people are loving it. A warning uh, tomorrow, Sam, I'm going to pull like five or six tweets from people talking about Friesen Brothers and and, and I'll I'll crowd your inbox with those because, I mean, don't listen to what I'm saying about it. You go, Jesperson's paid to say this. Talk to the people that are driving there to shop there. The entire week we are off. People it was nothing but Friesen Brothers them. tweets. It's seriously yeah. true. And not from Friesen Brothers. No. From real talkers. <laughs> Someone, I'll recognize your name this week, I promise. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but somebody said Jesperson was right. It was worth the 90-minute drive. And I went, oh, wow. Okay, there you go. It's worth the 90-minute drive. Friesen Brothers just off the Henday at Rabbit Hill Road. And, of course, the team at Park Power. They power our hashtag, Real Talk RJ. That's where we keep an eye on what you have to say. Well, it's one. One of the landscapes we monitor along with our live chat and our email inbox. Park Power is in the electricity, natural gas, and internet game at parkpower.ca. If you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, they're going to take 70 bucks and just knock it off your first bill, whether that's commercial or residential. Plus, Park Power invests in its communities with a profit-sharing plan. Check them out on social media. We're hanging out with Janelle Saskew, Mayor Barry Morishita, and Amarjeet Sohi. The three of them recently came together as part of a course at McEwen University in Edmonton. Can compassionate and collaborative leadership combat racism? Uh, Mayor, we were, we were talking about curriculum before the, the three of you came in and talking about history and what we teach our young people and what we expect them to be able to do with that information. How do they apply that knowledge You've got a sign behind you that I would imagine has some pretty significant meaning to you personally uh, relating to internment camps in Western Canada. Would you take us into it? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I, I've always been a bit disconnected from that part of me until the last, you know, my time as mayor is really meeting people that have come a long ways, uh, been discriminated against, and it really uh, came together when the Syrian refugee crisis was going on. And I was in a coffee line, actually, and and one said, you know, we can't believe we're letting those people in. And I and I turned to my somebody I've known for most of his life. I said, would you know a Syrian if you saw one? And, mm. and he couldn't tell me what a Syrian would look like. And, and you know, mm. to be honest, I couldn't tell you what a Syrian looks like either. They, Like I said, they look like people. I said, mm. um, and then that's how I kind of really started getting back to what happened in uh, to my to my relatives. So my mom, my grandmother was born in Canada in 1925. And... Uh, in 1942, um, she they had a small orchard in, in uh, the Okanagan Valley. Um, they were told that, uh, you know, because of the war, uh, they were going to have to be moved 100 kilometers away and have these things taken away. They'll get them back, though. They were told they were going to get them back. And uh, they moved to Tashmi, and Tashmi basically was a camp that was set up on an old uh, farm with a barn to start with. And there were uh, 2,644 Japanese uh, Canadians put there and we were put there. Uh, they were put there without, uh, with citizenship. They were called enemies of the States given cards that identified them as such. And this is how close we are to it, Ryan, my father and my aunt who are both alive today were born in an internment camp as Canadian citizens. Wow. And, and when you think about that, when I, when you really process it and you think about 
the things that some people are saying right now and the things that other people are denying right now, we are just one step away from actions mm -hmm. like that. And it can never be, um, uh, you know, minimized and it can never be shouted loud enough. We need to tell these stories to people uh, so they underst understand that uh, we're not that far away from uh, some serious, serious rights violations just based on where you uh, originate from. And Mike, like I said, my grandmother was born in Canada and uh, she was told, you know, you're, you're locked, we're locking you up. She was there till 1946. So let me get this straight. Your grandmother was born in Canada and her offspring were born in an internment camp. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, I have these, uh, nothing that I'm about to say is profound. I'm just treating this like we're out for coffee and this is nothing profound, but, but I, you know, I look back on things. We have a, we have a classic collector car and I was talking to our little guy. He's only five, but I know he can understand this stuff. He came back, he came from school, from kindergarten. I, I just, his kindergarten teacher is a rock star. He came back through Black History Month and he was talking about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and he's in kindergarten. And, and at an age appropriate level, but I said to him, we we're sitting out just the two of us. We like to sit in the garage in the front seat of the car and just talk. And I said, you know, I said, this car was three years old when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It's not that long ago, right? I mean, residential schools were operating in Alberta in the 1990s, right? I mean, this is yeah. not ancient history, right? Oh. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that we got through the course, uh, and Amarjeet really said it well, was that if we don't act on these smaller things, if we don't take leadership, it, it will get, you know, you kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's that whole boiling a frog idea that, you know, you let it, you just don't notice it. And unless you take action, somebody gets really badly damaged. And uh, that, that's where we are. We're at a crossroads, I think, in this um, province and in this country where, we either move the route that Amarjeet's course teaches us or we go the other way. And, and quite frankly, I'm very frightened of the other way. Hmm. Let me read. I, I appreciate dissenting uh, comments and, and uh, critical comments. I don't mind them at all. Um, Jeff is watching and he says this is another show of trying to elicit white guilt. Uh, he says, I certainly have never made friend or employee decisions based on race. And I would hope that most would realize that we all bleed red. Uh, I'd love for all three of you to touch on this. Um, Janelle, is this about white guilt? Absolutely not. This is about learning. This is about um, being more self-aware, um, more community aware. Um, you know, I respect Jeff's comments and uh, Jeff is very fortunate um, that he's able to think that way and that he's able to experience life that way. Unfortunately, um, for a lot of people in our society, uh, and, and that was the beauty of our course, is that we had such an array of people um, who have unfortunately experienced it. And, and Amarjeet, you are one. And some of the stories that you told us about your time um, in, in prison when you were in India, that you've told me that story years ago, back when we sat together on AUMA board, but that's resonated with me for many, many years. Um, so we can't stick our head in the sand and say, you know, that this is about white privilege. That's not what it is at, at all. Again, this is about educating and figuring out how we can be the catalyst for change. So 
So, Ryan, I think Jeff is touching on something that is uh, a hindrance for us to be anti-racist. And uh, Jeff is feeling defensive. He is feeling uh, that somehow he is being blamed, that white people are being blamed for racism. I think one way, I think for us to be really effective in uh, anti-racism work is create space for people to acknowledge that it's okay mistakes were made in the past, right? That it's okay on this journey, we will make mistakes. That this is a transformational thing that we will not get right all the time, right? And as we are on this together, that we we will, we will do things and we will say things that will be contrary to uh, uh, to our values, right? And, and that's okay. That's where the compassion comes in, I think, from uh, from my perspective uh, and the perspectives of many of my racialized friends. Racism is very, very painful experience. You can't deny the hurt that people feel. Um, but we also acknowledge that uh, for us to be effective, we need to pull allies together. And for us to build allies, we need to be compassionate towards those who will end up making mistakes as long as uh, they're together with us, as long as they're willing to learn and uh, and move together. I think that is where uh, leadership comes in, in the institutions. I, I truly hope that all of us who are leading organizations engage in professional development around anti-racism work because it will help us uh, make better people, but also help us lead better organizations. And, and uh, no, go so ahead, Ryan, Barry. I, if you don't mind, I, I really do want to address that directly. The, 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 the thing about, you know, trying to elicit white guilt, that, that is absolutely the wrong thing. And that's exactly what divides us. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact remains is that, you know, we're not, we're not here trying to dredge up the past in the sense of, you know, pointing a finger and blaming someone, as, as Amarjeet said. What we're trying to do is we're trying to acknowledge that progress can be made if we're all part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, I've been the recipient of, of looking white. You know, I, 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 I haven't been the subject of Asian or anti-Asian racism as much as some of my more Asian-looking friends and, and neighbors. That's just the truth of it. And uh, the fact that Jeff feels that, you know, these kinds of conversations are are made to point a finger, that's absolutely the exact opposite of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Progress doesn't get made uh, on the backs of the mistakes. What it does, it, get, it gets made on the backs of leaders that are willing to move the conversation forward, move beyond what's happened in the past. Uh, but it but it does have to be acknowledged. Making uh, the statement and educating people about what's what has happened and how uh, people of color, uh, people uh, that are racially discriminated, people that are religiously discriminated against, and it doesn't matter what, what that is. The fact is acknowledging that allows, like Amarjeet said, the space for them to move into a better spot. And for us, for the rest of us uh, that have the authority and and the position, and I'm glad Jeff has has never never looked at the color of people's skin when he's hired somebody. That is in itself progress. But at the same time, uh, you have to you have to admit that that is not the universal 
experience for people of color in this province, uh, for people of different gender, uh, it isn't. And we need to get to that. And that's what uh, that's what we're here trying to advance. Hmm. And, it, and, and I think having compassion and empathy in our leadership not only helps us deal with anti-racism work, but also allows us to deal with many other equity issues from, uh, you know, gender participation from LGBTQ communities on, uh, uh, you know, dealing with issues around domestic violence uh, and uh, and many other pains that people experience, right? I think it's just, a, it is a way of looking at your organizations and making them more, uh, creating the safe space, space, right? And uh, uh, within which that people are able to talk about their pain. It is also fundamentally important, Ryan, for us as we compete for talent in the world, as we're competing for economic diversification and uh, and our share of uh, uh, immigration, it is, it is important that we tackle those issues because uh, it is absolutely necessary for economic success and the success of our, of our organizations. I've got an interesting comment here. Megan says, you know, I read somewhere that the first step of getting free is admitting you have a colonized mind. You have to accept that everything that you have come to understand has come from that frame of society, that from Megan, which is really interesting. We've 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 had I mean, there are big words that get I don't want to I'm not dismissing them. I don't want to phrase this the wrong way, but people will say talk about, you know, Canada's colonial past. You know, I did sort of an explorative interview a couple of years ago on Canada Day talking to people who want to abolish Canada Day. And I'm happy to have that conversation. It doesn't mean that I feel that way. It's not a, it's not a, a direct statement on on how I feel about Canada or Canadians or Canada Day. But I'm happy to entertain those conversations. That's the whole point. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the word colonialism is used strongly. We talk about institutions like off the top of my head right now. I mean, Derek Chauvin is being tried, right? The, the former Minnesota police officer that murdered, Der- uh, you know, George Floyd. And and people are talking about people have been talking this year or for the past two years, I think more than ever before, or at least mainstream society has been talking more than ever before about white supremacy in institutions like policing. And that's not the only institution. But like I said on the show a while ago, and, and I've been trying to sort of explain what I mean by this. My understanding as a young man or my first exposure to so-called white supremacy was was John Malkovich and Danny Glover and Sally Field in places in the heart when the Ku Klux Klan shows up on the ranch. Right. And and that that to me is white supremacy, burning crosses, hatred, um, lynching. I mean, just the horrific history of that. But if you can understand that things like white supremacy can sometimes have some you know, some icing on them. Sometimes they're, they're a little more palatable if, if it's not something that impacts you directly or something like colonialism. It's not necessarily an indictment of you personally to acknowledge that there are colonial realities that need to be acknowledged because they're leading to perpetual pain for people. Um, maybe we need yeah. to find a way to, to have these labels be less of a threat to many of us, including me. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, White supremacy does not mean that white people are bad, right? White supremacy is an ideology. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a way of thinking that other people are less worthy of, uh, of those who come from certain uh, uh, background or some certain culture. That's what 
it 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 is about. So I think it is very important in our, in our conversations that we make that distinction that we don't blame white people for racism. We blame an ideology for racism that fosters that uh, 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 that those biases. Uh, you know, we all are victims of our own biases and assumptions. I think the more we question them, the better individuals we become ourselves, and better we become in the uh, in 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 the in the work we do. I think uh, uh, I think making one thing that we try to do in this course is that do not blame individuals. Look at structures that have caused this, and look at the history. And doesn't mean that you have to erase that history. Uh, I think erasing history doesn't solve solve anything. What you need to do is learn from that. Mm and move forward together. Yeah, we've and got, Ryan, yeah, go ahead. I think one of the important things also, and, and it's going back to exactly what you said, it's okay to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that, you know, you have that particular stance and, and, and you're going to fight till the death on that hill. It means that you're going to engage others and you're going to, you're going to learn from their perspective as you hope that they learn from yours as well. And, like I said, just because you engage in that conversation doesn't mean that you are 100% right. It just means that you're willing to to, to talk about it. And again, I, I keep using the phrase, it's the mom and me, I'm sorry, but <laughs> and we can continue to educate from it. Yeah. That's the important We've, we've got some great comments here on our on our live chat. Uh, Kim says, you know, and, and Amarjeet, this touches on what you just said, but Kim says when we say that we need to, you know, get over race or not see colors or treat everybody equal, aren't we also then potentially asking for erasure? She says, I learned that we are a mosaic, not a melting pot. You know, erase racism, but don't homogenize, which is an interesting comment. Yeah, I think... Uh I think one thing that uh, there's no one solution to these complex problems, and there's no one narrative that you can tie to say, no, this is the right narrative. I think what is important are openness and ability to come together and discuss and and and, and be comfortable to be challenged and also be comfortable that yeah, I might have been wrong in the past, but what I learned from society is how we uh, how we react sometimes in uh, in our institutions and those biases and influence our decisions uh, and those assumptions and privileges do lead to certain actions that we take in our lives that are actually uh, do exclude others from participation. I think that willingness and openness to uh, 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 to be uh, uh, saying, oh yeah, we, I might have made a mistake, and uh, then on the other hand, those who are, are 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 part of you should also be able to forgive you for that. Look at this. I don't even know if is this a real thing. I mean, it makes sense. I'm just reading this from Mariah, who says even like when we're talking about what's ingrained into us or the or the the context of our. I mean, Mariah says even even with homes like physical houses, a master bedroom. Does that raise any red flags? Didn't to me, hasn't to me ever. Mariah says, I've learned that that comes from when masters had slaves. She says, we use that language very easily. She says, I watched an Instagram TV post about it on Sarah Silverman's podcast. That's how Mariah learned about it. I mean, that's just like one example of a million, right? 
And yeah. I felt like sometimes this show is such a great exercise, and this isn't the only place it happens, but I want us to leave, like nothing's off the table, right? Let's have these uncomfortable conversations. Not everybody's going to agree with everything 100%. Maybe not everybody, Janelle, will have the experience that you have where you say, this literally changed my life. But for a lot of people, it will. And it will start with some of the change in language or maybe maybe a, a subtle tweak in our awareness of something and 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 then if you think about the cumulative impact on that it's very powerful yeah you know ryan you may not have noticed this but when, when barry was making his initial comments he used the language around uh describing homelessness he said people who experience homelessness mm-hmm. people who experience racism so the shifting of language matters because then you are actually not blaming the individual for the circumstances they are in. They are in those circumstances because, you know, they are in that, not because of their fault, because of societal issues. So they're experiencing those things, not that, uh, I think that shift in language matters a lot in uh, in our conversations. Again, you know, talking about, this commit making this commitment that we need to be anti-racist in our outlooks right is uh, just acknowledging that itself really f- will force you to think hard around your uh, uh, around the actions you take and also your uh, your behavior and and the uh, and how you interact with other people so i think reflection and uh, questioning a language absolutely uh, matters you know, and Ryan, if I could just, you know, when it comes to some people who, who kind of deny that uh, that there is systemic issues and that, um, you know, that there there's nothing really wrong. It's just a few bad apples and th- those kinds of statements. You know that that diminishes that diminishes the real issue, and the real issue is what we've been talking about is that these things are are ingrained. They're long. My, my, I can't even tell you where my my own bias comes from because I I don't know where it got into me, but it does exist. And the fact remains is that uh, being aware of it allows me to move forward. If we if we continue to uh, deny that this is a problem and we don't have these difficult conversations, then the other question has to be asked: If the organization was so good, was so perfect in its you know not discriminatory. Why did that happen? You know, why do I have uh, employees in my city who are are brown skinned? Why do they worry when they get pulled over on White Avenue in Edmonton in their BMW? And I've had my my employees come up to me and tell me that 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 should never. If there is, if that's the case, there's something wrong, and and we need to fix it. So we can't gloss over it by saying it's a few bad apples. The fact is, is that. Every, every leader in that organization, whether they're on the watch, whether they're the, the superintendent, whether they're the chief or whatever, when it comes to police, or whether you're the CEO or the chief financial officer or the HR manager, every time you let that go by, that is one or more people in your organization that says, I guess I'm not as important as that person. And that's plain and simple how they feel. We need to create the space, as Amarjeet said, and and we're only going to do that by acknowledging it and and uh, and talking about it. And uh, you know, Ryan, I really do appreciate that your show does that. That you're mm-hmm. willing to bring those perspectives, um, talk about issues that you know don't just 
shine everybody on your show or make us look good, but actually challenge the premises that we all seem to believe because that's the only way together we're going to make progress. And I honestly do believe that this uh, society, uh, there's a lot of hope for us here. And uh, these types of things are going to get us closer to our goals. Hmm. Well, I, I, it's not mine. It's, it's Stephen Covey's advice in, in uh, you know, to seek to understand. But I think that it, it applies in so many different areas that we seek to understand. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you think that a comment here from a, a viewer about this is another show about white guilt. It's, it's actually a very valuable comment because it allows us to address something that I think is a, is a pervasive um, pushback to conversations like this. And that provides value. And I'm grateful that that viewer is here uh, to contribute that to the conversation. Um, Kaylin's watching this morning live from Vancouver. She says the opportunity to change colonial systems is so important. Um, Alberta's new curriculum appears to do the opposite. The two topics today are so connected, uh, which is true. Uh, Becca says, you know, too many people are afraid to have these types of conversations um, which I think is true as well. People people get kind of scared off of stuff like this. And she says, you know, they have their argument hat on with blinders on instead of a debate hat or, you know, a, a hat willing to consider things, willing to expand their perspectives. Daniel says we need to have more uncomfortable conversations. Yes. Which I totally yeah. agree with. Right. I mean, discomfort yeah. is such a valuable tool, Amarjeet. Absolutely. If you're unwilling to be uncomfortable, then you're not going to grow in your uh, in your work so my appeal ryan to people who are listening to your show or uh, anyone who is in leadership role and a lot of us are in leadership role and leadership doesn't mean that you are running a big organization leadership is at community level it is in the family it is in uh, in our school systems and in every aspect there we are all leaders uh, and as leaders if we are more open-minded and just more thoughtful and reflective. And I think then we will become better people as well. I think that is the beauty. Like I, I learned so much. And as for biases, I, I don't think anyone is free from biases. We learn our biases from society. I have been, you know, I have been biased in my life. I have been a victim of bias as well on the other side. I think, uh, and, uh, Biases are learned from society, but we can also unlearn our biases. We can also unlearn racism that we have learned from society, but we will do that only if we are willing to go on that journey. Yeah, I mean, I I would never. I mean, everyone has bias. I, I just think it's it it's inherent. It's obvious. It's due to your upbringing. It's based on your perspectives. There there is inherent bias. But I think it's how you, like you said, it's how you invoke that or how it infuses itself into your decision making or whether or not, quite frankly, you're even aware of it at the beginning. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it. A lot of people. Don't know. Yeah. Janelle, I love this. This is because, um, you know, you talk you, it, sometimes there's going to be big picture stuff and sometimes it's tiny little tweaks. Right. And I, I want to speak candidly here. I hope nobody's offended. But Troy touches on something that I literally talked to a buddy about this three days ago. And Troy says regarding language. He says any I mean, he gets specific. He says any other rural white people remember this. I mean, it could be anybody, but he says, you know, your parents telling you an anecdote like a story and telling you the race of every non-white person in the story, even though it's not relevant. 
a buddy, a buddy of mine was saying the other day, his dad and bless his heart, his dad doesn't mean any harm. I know it, but he says he, he went and bought something off Kijiji. He goes, yeah, I went and bought it off a Chinese guy. And, and my buddy's like, what, <laughs> what, like, what does, what does that have to do with anything? It has nothing to do with anything. Right. Do you know, I mean, it can, it can be these tiny little tweaks of things that, that we don't even realize that we're doing and, and maybe they're not done out of malice. This is where it all starts. No, it, it's very true. And, and you know what? Um, I experienced it moving into our small community. Um, we had a lot of comments about us, you know, they're, they're that Ukrainian family that moved in. Mm-hmm. And uh, hard to believe that in 2000, we would be identified that way, right? Um, I have never walked up to anybody, shook their hand and said, hi, can you tell me what nationality you are? Or can you tell me your sexual preference? That's not how I meet people. I introduce us by name. I carry a conversation and and that's how we get to know each other and that's what we have to do so why does this still exist and like i said it, it for me you know there was a lot of people that were you know questioning why i was taking this you're from a small community what does it matter no it does matter because my exposure is is i have a huge network <laughs> and if i can install a little change in in thought or provoke a conversation or or have someone in their own minds question themselves why do i think this way or why did i react this way in this situation um you know then i've done my job by by expanding that network and that's what we have to do yeah uh i've just seen that the the team at uh, McEwen university school of continuing education have tweeted out uh, a link to you know version 2.0 of this course this opportunity for folks and i've retweeted it so if you follow me on twitter you can uh you can find more information there i wanted to just as as we do on this show kind of a a call to action you know to to give us something to walk with and think about and i want to give each of you an opportunity to give us something to 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 ponder today and through this week and and mayor maybe we'll go with you first what's one thing you want us to keep in mind I think one thing to keep in mind, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to look really on my community is, you know, change is change is difficult. And uh, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to identify it uh, and and kind of blame it. Um, but we I think the one thing I want to leave with everybody today is that, you know, look around you and uh, look at the makeup of your community and look at the new people in your community. And it doesn't really matter what they look like, but they're bringing something to your community. There's the potential for them to make your community better. And uh, I I really want people to focus on that. Being inclusive, being considerate, being kind, uh, doesn't cost us anything. It, It provides such a huge payback. And then this time of COVID when we're struggling, when we're all tired, uh, when our, our nerves are at the end, let's remember to be compassionate, to be kind. And uh, that, that's really what I want to leave. And I think if everybody takes that course, they will understand the value of it. Just mm. be kind. Janelle, what are our marching orders, so to speak? Well, I think that I always like to look for opportunity. And um, I'm actually going to use COVID as an opportunity. Um, the world as we knew it, you know, it, 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 the doors closed on in March of 2020. Here's an opportunity for us to start anew. Everyone is talking about the new normal. Here's our opportunity to shape that new normal. So here's our chance. And like I said, whether you're a leader within your own home, within your own community, within your own organization, here's an opportunity for you to be that compassionate leader. 
to learn from others. And I'm going to go back to my phrase, educate everybody so that we can be the best version of ourselves and encourage others to do the same. Amarjeet, we'll give you last word. Well, I just want to build on that, um, Ryan, that uh, COVID has taught us many lessons. It has laid bare so many inequities in our society from uh, people who experience homelessness uh, and the plight of seniors in uh, long-term care. Uh, You know, the issues around uh, vulnerability for frontline workers uh, uh, and uh, people who come here to make a you know, make their lives and build their lives uh, are put in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in a very unhealthy working conditions and then um, the exposure to racism and all that, right? Uh, so those, I think we need to reflect on those. And uh, the, I think we all have experienced pain over the last year and a half in, in our lives, right? And, uh, and let's build on that by be- becoming more compassionate, Let's build on that by tapping into that compassion that we have seen, outpouring of compassion that we have seen during COVID toward each other. I think we can harness that to build a better society. I've heard so many people talk about how they, they remember, you know, a year ago around this time when the messaging was, we are all in this together. And then exhaustion and so many other factors play in it, and it sort of appears to, at least in some contexts, have strayed from that. And we wonder yeah. if maybe this could be one step toward reminding everybody that we are, in fact, in this, this being all of this together. And I'm so grateful that the three of you have agreed to talk to us today. I can tell you, you've inspired our audience uh, in remarkable ways. I mean, even just the chatter going on in our live chat, some really raw stuff in there, which is so good. Uh, Janelle Saskia, Mayor Barry Morshida and Amarjeet Sohi, we're grateful for this. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Ryan. As mentioned, you can uh, check out, uh, you know, Twitter.com slash Ryan Jesperson. I'm at Ryan Jesperson on Twitter. Or you can follow, of course, McEwen University's School of Continuing Education. They've tweeted out a link if you want to learn more about the program that we're talking about. We want to get to more of your emails in just a moment. Plus, Sam, we did blow through. Uh, we do have news prepared, but we had such a great conversation with our <laughs> curriculum experts out of the gates. We didn't want to leave our panel sitting. So we'll get to the news in just a second. Let me take a quick opportunity to remind you that the team at McBain Camera is ready right now to help you ramp up your photography game. The uh, I mean, the history of McBain Camera, they've been serving Alberta's photographers and that community since 1949. And right now they're particularly excited about this Panasonic Lumix G9 camera that's the DC G9 it's built for speed which means it can lock focus in a fraction of a second and shoot up to 20 frames per second which is wild plus five axis image stabilization tack sharp photos when you're shooting handheld without a tripod long lens you know how it goes plus the magnesium alloy body is weather resistant so if wildlife photos are your thing this is the rig for you When you order a Panasonic G9 at McBainCamera.com, enter the promo code REALTALK, just one word, at checkout to receive a free spare battery with your order. McBain has six Alberta locations, convenient, ready to go, answering all your questions. 
And I had a meeting yesterday with the team at the University of Alberta. Their three-minute thesis competition is coming up live on Thursday of this week, April 1st at one o'clock and I'm so excited to be hosting it. These are the thousands of, of researchers, postgraduate students at the U of A working on incredible stuff. There's a People's Choice Award that needs to be handed out, which means they're looking for your votes. You can check it out at uab.ca slash 3MT uab.ca slash 3MT and make sure you catch Real Talk this Friday, April 2nd, 9 o'clock, a Real Talk roundtable with three of the top finishers. Let's call them the top innovators, the top researchers from the University of Alberta, the Faculty of Graduate Studies. Very excited about that. Let's take a look at what's making news this morning. Thursday at 9 o'clock, we'll be talking about this right here on the show. Uh, Canada's Vaccine Advisory Committee recommending uh, immediately suspending the use of this AstraZeneca Oxford COVID-19 vaccine in Canadians under 55 following reports of rare but potentially fatal blood clots in Europe that appear to be connected to the shot. Uh, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization updated its guidelines to the provinces and territories against using the vaccine for younger Canadians. That was yesterday. Health Canada saying yesterday that 300,000 doses of AstraZeneca have been administered. They've seen zero cases of the rare blood clotting adverse events, but they're saying that this should instill confidence in Canadians, showing that they're committed to the safety of the vaccine. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Quebec, Ontario, Newfoundland, Labrador, and PEI have all suspended use of the vaccine for anybody below 55 with other provinces and territories expected to follow. And as mentioned, we're into day two of the trial. Uh, Derek Chauvin standing, a former Minneapolis police officer, in the death of George Floyd. I wanted to just actually rip this from the front page of the New York Times because their team coverage of this is remarkable. And nobody quite reports stories like the Times. Correct. For nearly a year, the country's understanding of George Floyd's death has come mostly from a gruesome video of a white Minneapolis police officer kneeling on Mr. Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. It has become, for many, a painful encapsulation of racism in policing. But as the murder trial of the officer, Derek Chauvin, opened on Monday, his lawyer attempted to convince jurors that there was more to know about Mr. Floyd's death than the Stark video. The case was about Mr. Floyd's drug use, said the lawyer, Eric Nelson. It was about Mr. Floyd's size, his resistance of police officers, his weakened heart. It was about an increasingly agitated crowd that gathered at an intersection in South Minneapolis, which diverted Mr. Chauvin's attention from Mr. Floyd, who was black. This asserted the defense lawyer was in part an overdose, not a police murder. Prosecutors, however, said the case was exactly what it seemed to be and exactly what the video with its graphic, indelible moments had revealed. You can believe your eyes. It's homicide. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell told jurors in an opening statement, it's murder. The trial continues today. We've been checking in our uh, Real Talk inbox. You can reach out to us anytime. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. And of course, it's no surprise that the emails continue to arrive from those of you that were tuned in to, to hear our uh, curriculum experts early in the show. Carolyn wrote in. As a matter of fact, she wrote Premier Jason Kenney and she CC'd talk at ryanjesperson.com. She says, I'm writing this letter as a parent. And as a teacher who's lived in Alberta my entire life, I'm writing in opposition of the new curriculum draft, 
Well, I do support parts of this new draft, like changes to the language arts sections. I read it and find it to be steeped in Eurocentric Christian viewpoints. And I feel that much of the new curriculum draft needs to be changed. The idea that we should teach only one way to compute numbers because parents don't understand the other ways is beyond my belief. Uh, Parents don't understand different strategies because they were only taught one way. Should this not be changed? Do we not want open-minded, problem-solving, collaborative workers for our future Alberta instead of a generation who only understands one way to complete a problem? As for the social studies curriculum, writes Carolyn, I'm shocked that it would even be proposed. As a teacher myself of young kids, I find the concept of past useless. It's directly related to themselves. It's difficult for students to engage in and grasp Much of the proposed curriculum for grades two and three were things that my honors with distinction grade 10 daughter learned this year. And many of the concepts were difficult for her to connect to without guidance and support. Should we really be teaching ancient European civilizations while ignoring our own rich history with First Nations and the land we live on? Is it really important to learn about the American Revolution before Alberta's residential schools? Should we be teaching about a higher being in public schools. These are all things I see problems with in the new curriculum draft, says Carolyn, and sends that along to, well, she's not messing around. The justice minister, who's her MLA, the education minister, Adriana LaGrange out of Red Deer, and Premier Jason Kenney. Maureen took the time to reach out to us from her iPad. She says, I'm a 77-year-old retired teacher. I, I don't have words for this assault on public education. So this week I contributed $500 to Rachel Notley's war fund. (laughs) Did you read this email from Maureen? Yeah, I did. I don't know what she looks like, but I'm picturing her typing this. And and I think that she's, her blood pressure is elevated a little bit. She says, I will try to donate the maximum allowable to the NDP this year. Financing the defeat of these incompetent UCP thugs will be the best investment I can make in my grandchildren's future. (laughs) That from Maureen, who is not messing around. I love that. We also got some great emails while we were away, and and I wanted to read this one. I love this from Mark. Mark says, Ryan, I thought that while you and Sam were on hiatus, I'd listen to shows that I had missed from the beginning, right when Real Talk launched. He says, I just finished show number seven, which was on December 1st. And what a powerful show, says Mark. Doctors Virani and Hishka and journalist Andrea Wu and Ryan, your brother, Kyle, Such wonderful insights and truths and new information for me that really filled in the gaps in my understanding. That was a show on opioids and our overdose crisis, our health crisis in Canada, support for supervised consumption and the like. Mark says it's no wonder that Real Talk was already Canada's top podcast by that time. What's amazing and ironic to me is that listening to the first seven shows that you did you could do those again right now. We're, we were just at that time going into the second wave of COVID and, and there were new lockdowns and people were defying health orders and racism was rearing its ugly head. And there was COVID fatigue and there were confusing messages from health officials and absolutely no leadership from our premier on so many issues. And, and here we are, says Mark, on the precipice of wave three. And I'm listening to Dr. Varani, and he had it right in that December 1st interview on Real Talk on, on the way out of COVID, how to avoid what we're in, and how this provincial government's politics have exasperated the situation. He says, 
How did you put it, Ryan? He says, on December 1st, an hour and six minutes into your show, quote, isn't it sad? Isn't it a sad commentary about the media landscape when we at Real Talk are celebrated for putting on experts on subjects that matter? He says, thanks for your show. That from Mark. This one from Pat, who said, I've just been catching up on your past podcasts. And says, I absolutely love. This was March 18th. How you have Mayor Nenshi, who's, who's showing leadership, Calgary's mayor, by grabbing mental health by the horns, by creating a plan that's a blueprint for the rest of the world. And, and then you have Dr. Michael E. Mann on from Penn State University with a, with a reasonable and logical conversation about climate change that will change my own understanding about this issue, says Pat. How enlightening to listen to him. However, my blood is boiling that the provincial government is not capitalizing on the innovation and the entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial spirit, the pivot that we have to make from fossils to renewables. We have the most to lose and the most to gain. We could be world leaders in renewables. Can you imagine what we could do with 30 million from the war room or 1.3 billion from Keystone? What a boring and lethargic leader we have. That from Pat. And this is a long one, but I wanted to wrap the show on this. I wanted to wrap the show on this because it fits into what we were just talking about for the last 45 minutes or so. Darren wrote in to say, I've really come to enjoy listening to Real Talk over the past few weeks. The podcast is a great companion for my daily walks along the Bow River here in Calgary. Darren, you're taking me there mentally. I see anglers. Hey, Sam, those those fly I mean, <laughs> I, I will say this as a as a proud born and bred Edmontonian. Every time I drive down by the river in downtown Calgary, I'm just like, man, this is nice. It's so nice. It's so beautiful. Down <laughs> it's there. So nice. Oh. So Darren listens to Real Talk on the podcast as he walks along the Bow River. He says, I appreciate your willingness to engage in difficult conversations with a wide variety of people on your show. Social media doesn't always, as a matter of fact, never seems to give us a broad perspective on the world. So real talk is a breath of fresh air. He says, I just listened to your panel with Dr. Loxu, Teresa Wupa, and Raja McGay. Uh, and, and I wanted to write in to share my own story. He says, I, I posted it on my social media feeds because it was important for me to share my perspective on anti-Asian racism. He says, I've been sitting on this post all week trying to find the right words to describe what it feels like to experience racism in Canada. This month marks the one year point since the pandemic was declared, but the xenophobia and the racism that became symptoms of COVID's impact on society predate March of 2020. As a member of the LGBTQ2S plus community, fear for my safety is not new, says Darren. Being chased down St. Catherine Street in Montreal by a mob of angry heterosexual men was terrifying. In public, I'd keep my head down, never drawing too much attention for fear of being targeted. I made my gait, the way I walked, more masculine. I kept my hands in my pockets while talking so that I, I wouldn't gesticulate too much. I said as little as possible to avoid sounding gay. But as I got older, I became less and less fearful. I learned to love myself for who I am and to embrace all of my idiosyncrasies for what they are. I never imagined I might have to be fearful again. As somebody who lives in Canada, I've always considered myself Canadian first and Chinese second. 
That's not to say that I don't embrace my Chinese heritage. It just didn't necessarily define me or my identity. The events of the past year have really put that way of thinking into perspective. Not only do I question now what it means to be Canadian, I also wonder what being Chinese looks like in Canada. We didn't speak Mandarin or Cantonese at home. My first and second languages are are Canada's official languages. I tried Chinese schools on Saturdays as a kid, but I flunked out in like two weeks. I'm almost embarrassed to admit I can't even write my own full name in Chinese. A number of years ago, I got certified to teach English overseas. My dream destination, Hong Kong. Guess how many jobs I got? Zero. It turns out Asians don't want to hire Asians to teach them English. Imagine discrimination from my own people. In hindsight, probably for the best, since I can't read or speak a lick of Cantonese. This past week, I noticed how often I check my surroundings when I'm out for a walk on the river. I find myself looking over my shoulder, keeping my music lower so that I can hear, steering clear of people. Before this week, I would have attributed that to COVID, but after the events in Atlanta, I realized I had internalized a fear of experiencing a more explicit racism. I worry about being spit on. I worry about being told to go back to where I came from, even though that would be Calgary. I worry about being shoved or beaten. I worry that police wouldn't stop to help. I worry for my sister and my mom and my dad and their safety. I've lived here for most of my life, and I've never feared these things before, but weekly marches with tiki torches and Confederate flags being flown over Calgary cemeteries give me reason to be afraid. A premier who only had to say this, quote, I condemn these voices of bigotry in the strongest possible terms to the overt white supremacy on display in weekend marches is garbage, but not surprising. Even city officials have been slow to respond to these not-so-subtle racist marches. Now, unlike my sexuality, says Darren, I can't disguise my Asian heritage. A ball cap and sunglasses will only do so much. I can't look less Chinese. I can't change the shape of my eyes or my nose. I can't change the color of my skin. All I can do is have a safety plan for avoiding danger from those who would wish me harm. And I have every right to be afraid. Not only for being Asian, but also for being a member of the LGBTQ2S plus community. I don't want my husband to be faced with police remarks about my attacker having had a really bad day. Will police try to humanize my attacker? That is some privileged bullshit. Let me tell you, says Darren. He says, I don't feel like this provincial government has my best interests at heart. Not when members of the government have, have been photographed and make America great again hats. Not when they think that vandalism of an opposition member's office, an MLA's office with Antifa liar is comparable to penguins being made out of snow outside the legislature. So when I see people leaving Alberta, I'm not the least bit surprised. But how will these things ever get better if those who would stand up to oppression leave? I get it. It sucks here now. This government's made it okay for people to be racist. They've made it okay for QAnon to exist. They've made it okay for people to be assholes. But if you leave, who will stand against them? Stay, says Darren. Vote. Put signs on your lawn, the good kind. Make it known that if you see racism, you'll do something about it. Help me find safe places to go if I find myself being chased again, like I was in Montreal. It feels regressive to be fearful again. I may be out and proud, But that doesn't mean I want to invite harassment or abuse. Last year, we attended the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, and we stood in solidarity against the systemic racism that underlies Canadian culture. I was fearful then, but I was hopeful. 
I want to. No, I need to find that hope again. I need to hope that we can do better. I may be exhausted, but I will never give up because love wins every time. That from loyal Real Talk listener, Darren. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I've been waiting to read that email for like a week ever since he sent it to us. Absolutely amazing. We're so grateful for the time that you take to include us and to share your thoughts with us, for the time that you spend telling others about the conversations you're hearing here on the show, for liking and sharing our content, for subscribing to our podcast, subscribing to our YouTube page. And we've got more coming up in days to come, including, as mentioned, more on vaccines Thursday, a great roundtable on innovators on Friday, and a whole bunch of other coverage in between. Make it a great Tuesday, and we'll talk to you soon. The gun on-